Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Vershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University. And the following is part of a series of a course uh, devoted to analysis and argument that I teach our first years at McEwen. And so there's not as much science fiction, fantasy, or horror around these days, although we will talk a little bit about Godzilla along the way. Uh, Today's discussion is about entering the conversation, uh, thinking about research as part of a larger conversation. So this week we jump backwards from chapter two of They Say, I Say to take a look at the preface and the introduction uh, where Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein lay out their intentions for the book. Uh, But they also state their thesis along the way here. Uh, One of the first things that they do is they defend something that Birkenstein brings to the table, uh, which is the templates. Um, the templates are really a sort of fill-in-the-blanks approach to doing research. And the reason that I want to kick off with the templates before we move on to their thesis is because I think they're one of the things that students most often overlook, and they're one of the things that I've had colleagues immediately dismiss. But one of the things that, that I've noticed about the templates after having used them, not only with my students, but occasionally uh, when I assign an exercise, I do the work a little bit myself. And I have to agree with Graf and Birkenstein when they say in the preface that templates do more than just organize a student's ideas or your ideas. They help bring those ideas into existence by providing prompts that can stimulate and shape such thought. For my colleagues, I think we often forget, myself and my colleagues will often forget what it was like to be 18 years old and entering university. Um, we've sort of got an idea that students know more than they potentially do. And this is no, this is not me casting shade on my students and being like, you're not very smart because you're very, very smart people. You are in university. You're sharp people. And many people who never make it to university are super sharp people. But w- what we know about how to do things is often very limited. And it's it's like riding a bike, or for me, it was like learning bass guitar. Uh, these are things that I've done for so long that I don't really have to think about doing them anymore. So teaching that to someone else is almost counterintuitive. Teaching writing introductory writing for people who potentially write on a regular basis, people who have published books, who publish articles on a regular basis, and who are writing at a a higher level, and I will use the term of discourse. And the reason I want to use that term here is that I recently had a conversation with some guys on Discord where someone said, we've really lowered the level of discourse here, haven't we? Because there was some, um, you know, sort of off-color jokes happening. And one of the other guys came in and said, what's discourse? And I, I and I, I think it was a joke, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe this person was really saying, is there another way that you could put this? Yeah, we could. Discourse is discussion. And so there are simpler ways of approaching doing some of the really complex things that we do in university. What I love about what Graf and Birkenstein do is exactly what they say in the preface, demystifying the work of academic writing. And these templates do some of that demystification by simply saying, you could begin by filling in the blanks. 
that feels reductionary for some of my colleagues and potentially even for some students that come in here and say, whoa, wait a second, like Graf and Birkenstein say, this is, this is primary grade stuff. This is the sort of thing that I learned years ago. But did you learn it? That's the question. Not did you learn to write, but did you learn to write and think and research in the ways that Graf and Birkenstein are talking about? I'm going to be switching between Birkenstein and Birkenstein. I've been listening to the audiobook of They Say, I Say as review. And they pronounce Birkenstein, and I would say Birkenstein because it looks like a German name to me, and you always go with the second vowel uh, in, in German. So I'll probably uh, be a little inconsistent there, uh, my bad. But um, using these templates is a way of getting our ideas going. And I don't think there's ever a wrong way of prompting writing. Whatever gets you started is the right thing. It's like with exercise. They say the best exercise is the one you do. Well, the best way to start writing is the way that gets you started. So if you take a look at those templates and you start writing with them and they seem really useful, then by all means, go for it. Uh, if it seems beneath you to use them, I want you to just sort of check yourself for a moment and try it anyway. And if it still doesn't work, then leave it behind. Um, but what I love about the templates is that they generate the very things that Graf and Birkenstein are recommending to us throughout They Say, I Say. Um, they ask they, they ask us to answer questions like, what do they say about my topic, whatever your topic is? And the they say of they say, I say is what do other people say? Specifically in university, not just what does anyone say, but what do other scholars say about my topic? And I say other scholars because since you're entering university, you're on your path to becoming one. And the moment that you set your foot in the water of scholarship, I think of you as a scholar, a junior scholar perhaps, but a scholar nonetheless. If you're someone who isn't even attending university and you're just checking this stuff out on YouTube or on the podcast, you're a scholar too. Uh, it's like uh, Julia Cameron once said about um, art in the artist's way. Uh, you don't have to be paid. It doesn't have to be your job to say that you're an artist or a musician or an actor or whatever it might be. You just might be somebody who doesn't get paid for it, right? You're not a professional in that regard. I'm a professional scholar. A lot of people probably won't end up that way. It's just a, just the way things are. And plus, it doesn't make half as much money as you might have been told. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Um, what would a naysayer say about my argument, right? You're like, what is it, a naysayer even? Well, if you use the templates, you don't even have to know what a naysayer is. You just, you have to fill in the information there. But as you're using the templates, it's super important to think about what's actually being said to reread what you've filled in the blanks with. You can't just dump information in there and think that it's going to do the trick. You have to think about what makes the most sense. You might even have to revise the template to make it work. What is my evidence? And right there, if Graf and Birkenstein are forcing us to have evidence for my argument, then we're moving towards our long-term goal of this semester of writing a research paper. This whole term is writing a research paper in slow motion. And finally, who cares? Because if no one cares about what we're writing about, then why should we write about it? And this doesn't have to be an earth-shattering, change-the-world you know, we're going to, we're going to cure COVID and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to stop racism and we're going to stop, um, you know, homophobia. We're, th that's what we're going to do with our essays in our first year, uh, while we're studying Hiroshima and Godzilla. <laughs> no, you're not, but you should figure out a way of saying to somebody out there, 
why they should care or identifying an audience that does care. And the templates can help an awful lot in the journey towards, uh, you know, finding those spaces, getting that information on the page. Now, for context, for those of you who tune into this who aren't part of my class, uh, my students get assigned um, either one of two streams. They're either going to write their entire uh, work this semester about Hiroshima, or they're going to write it about Godzilla, or they're going to switch streams because from paper to paper, they might be like, this one's too hard. Can I go over and do the Godzilla one? And because I'm a softie, I say yes. Uh, Makes it harder for the research paper later on, potentially. That's another thing. But um, all of the articles that we look at, all of the readings this semester, have to do with one of these two streams. They either have to do with Hiroshima or they have to do with Godzilla. And the articles that uh, my, uh, that you're working with right now um, is Hiroshima Historians Reassess by Gar Alperovitz or Godzilla's Footprint by Steve Rifle. Now, each of these individuals are people who are often quoted in uh, literature, articles, secondary sources, scholarly work on these topics. If you go and you do scholarly work on Hiroshima, you're probably going to run into Garl Perovitz's name. If you go and you do scholarly work on Godzilla, you're probably going to run into Steve Rifle's name. So these are big names. So when we're choosing our they says, we want to go and we want to find the experts. That's the idea here, is that we want to start by finding some experts and listening to what they have to say. Because in the introduction of They Say, I Say, Graf and Birkenstein say, hey, writing well means entering into conversation with others. And near the end of the chapter, um, they talk about this uh, idea that Kenneth Burke had, where he imagines the academic work, the the work of writing research papers, uh, of just, you know, uh, doing research as a conversation at a party. And I love that metaphor because I think when we're actually at parties and we're walking around the room and we're mixing it up and somebody says something about something we love or something we hate, we find ourselves stopping and potentially listening in. If we're an introvert, we, we hang on the side and we kind of just don't get involved. Um, if we're an extrovert or we're, we're outgoing, then we're going to jump in there and we're going to say, hey, hold on a second. So, you know, if you're really into, I don't know what it is, if you're really into hockey and somebody disses your favorite team as you're walking by, or they say something about a current uh, game, I know nothing about sports, um, then you're going to stop and you're going to enter that conversation potentially. Uh, the number of times that I've been at barbecues and hear somebody, you know, some outburst and you look over and it's a few people arguing over who's going to win the Stanley Cup. We could see that, you know, we enter into conversation with others, right? And, 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 and that goes hand in hand with another concept that uh, um, uh, Graf and Birkenstein talk about that we are deeply engaged in the best academic writing. The best academic writing has one underlying feature. It is deeply engaged in some way with other people's views. Deeply engaged. I can think of a ton of student papers that I've read, and I mentioned this uh, last week in the content on summary, where the student didn't engage with someone else's views at all. Like zero. No engagement whatsoever. And Graf and Birkenstein are saying the best academic writing features this. This is part of what really great academic writing has. 
But I would also say that being deeply engaged with other people's views helps generate our ideas in this way that I'm talking about with Kenneth Burke's conversation idea. Walking around a party, somebody says something that triggers us and we get involved, either on the sidelines or right in the thick of it. We will become deeply engaged, though, if we know something about it. That's the thing. If you don't know anything about hockey, like I don't know anything about hockey, I walk by somebody dissing somebody else's team and I couldn't care less. But if I'm walking by and somebody, I don't know, says something really, I don't, dissing Superman is a, is a number one way of getting me to, to sort of jump to the pump, as it were. Um, I love Superman. Uh, if people say something that, like, I'm like, whoa, wait, like, you know, just the, the offhanded, is Batman better than Superman? Which is a dumb argument, but it happens, and I will get involved in that one. I am deeply engaged in it. I've loved superheroes since I was a kid, and so I'm going to jump into that conversation. Uh, if people are talking about movies, if they're talking about role-playing games, things that I am deeply engaged with, I will get involved. And you're probably the same way. You have things that you're deeply engaged with. I don't know what those things are. And we will get in, we will get in there and we will have an argument. Students say they struggle to write research papers. I've, over the years that I've been teaching, students come to me and they say, you know, this is like two days before the, the paper is due and they'll say, Dr. Prashan, I can't, I can't get, I can't get started on this paper. So I'll say, well, what have you got for secondary sources? I don't have any secondary sources. What do you mean you don't have any secondary sources? Well, I went to the library and I couldn't find any on the topic that I wanted to write about. And I'm like, okay, that's a terrible uh, way of going about this. You came up with a topic and then you went looking for stuff to support it. That's ass backwards. That is the wrong way around to writing a research paper. You don't come up with a, with a thing you want to say and then go looking for support for that because potentially you're not going to find it and you're going to run yourself right into this corner. But in even in instances where I will have assigned the readings, I'll have students come and they'll say, I just can't get started on this paper. And I'll say, did you do the reading? And they'll be like, no. And I'll say, you have to go and do the reading. Or they'll say, yeah, I read it once and I kind of skimmed it like you said we should. Like last week I was talking about skim it and then read it more deeply and then annotate it. And I'm like, did you do the other types of reading? Have you read this over and over again? This is the core of your assignment. And they're like, no, I haven't. Well, if you aren't deeply engaged with the content that you're supposed to be writing about, how do you expect to produce any work on it? You're going to be, you're going to be working out of a vacuum. You know, there's this idea in, in they say, I say that, that where, where Graf and Birkenstein talk about this, that, you know, but some people just think it's like we, you just supposed to grab ideas out of the air. No, you go and you do the reading. You read articles written by scholars, you see what they have to say, you get that information in your head, and you don't respond to it immediately, because at that point, you don't know enough to respond. This is the thing. We have been sort of trained as a society that everyone's opinion is valid, and that's bullshit. People who are experts have valid opinions about their areas of expertise. Hockey, for example, once again, you shouldn't ask me to be an expert on hockey. Nobody's ever going to have me be a pundit on, uh, you know, Hockey Night in Canada. I'm never going to be that person talking about... I would just be like, dude, skating down the ice. I wouldn't even... Like, I only found out what icing was about 10 years ago, and I'm 50. 
So I've lived my whole life in Canada and I just didn't know. As I say, hockey's not my thing. More power to those of you who, for whom it is. If your car breaks down on the side of the road and I drive up, I can phone uh, AMA for you, but that's about as far as I can take it. I could maybe do the, the jumper cables, although increasingly, um, you know, with the way that they're building cars, probably not a good idea. Better to have the expert come along and take a look at your vehicle and tell you what the problem is. And that's why I go to experts, because I need somebody who knows something about cars, because I don't know about cars. And so we, but we've got this idea that every, everyone's voice needs to be heard. And maybe that's true, but do we need to consider everyone's voice on every topic? I don't think so. Because if you don't have an ounce of expertise in an area, and you come up and you say, well, you want to know what I think about uh, Hiroshima or Godzilla? I don't care. Because you don't know anything. You have to demonstrate that expertise. And so when we go to do a research paper, we shouldn't be approaching it as though we already have an idea, a foregone conclusion. We want to come to a conclusion as we do our research. Okay? So we start with what they say to gain expertise. And as we're doing that, we're playing that believing game where we are open enough to what's being said to have our minds changed. That's the reason you come to university, by the way. I know that many of you think you came to university to get a degree so that you could get a really good job, but you don't really need to go to university to get a well-paying job. You don't. Um, you know, there's lots of jobs that you can get that make an awful lot of money that don't require a post-secondary education. You might be like, I can't believe you're saying this. You're undermining the university. No, no, I'm not. There are also jobs that you absolutely cannot get without a post-secondary education. But my point is, is if your only goal in coming to university is to get a great job, eh, there's probably faster and more efficient ways of doing it. When you come to a university, especially when you're in a course uh, in the liberal arts, uh, the stuff that we call arts and arts and science, the education itself is the valuable thing. And I actually think that's true across the board, by the way. I don't just think it's true about the liberal arts. But when somebody says like, well, what's the point in studying poetry? Or what's the point in studying film? Or whatever it might be. And I'm like, it depends on what you mean, like what, where you're going with that question. What do we mean by that point? Like if you mean like, what's the, what's the bottom line dollar value of an education that ends with an English lit major's degree, then um, it's probably not as good as what you'd get if you were over in business. But what we do when we come to university and we get deeply engaged with what we're reading and what we're learning is that our minds are changed. And I'm not just talking about like your mind was changed about... Um, I don't know. You came to university and you were really right wing. There's this idea that, you know, we're the university's filled with leftist people. This is not true, by the way. You can't poll us about this. We're not really supposed to talk about our political views with our students, but just trust me on this. Uh, we have conservatives and we have, uh, you know, uh, liberals and we have people who support the NDP, all sorts of uh, stuff in the university. I'm not talking about that kind of mind change. I'm not talking about you changed your mind about whether or not Godzilla was a really great movie or you changed your mind uh, about what you think about Hiroshima. I'm talking about the mind being changed at the very level of your brain. That as we learn, we forge new pathways in the brain. This is called plasticity. Your brain is literally changing. And it's not 
the facts that you learn about Godzilla or the facts that you learn about Hiroshima that will be the most valuable things that you'll take away from this course. It may not even be that you'll learn how to write a research paper, but that your brain will have learned new ways to approach writing in a, a way that's not all that distinct from muscle memory. Okay. So when I say that your your brain gets changed when you're at university, I'm not just talking about it in some sort of like, you know, you've, you've changed your political view, or you've changed some ethical view that you had, but we get deeply engaged. We get deeply engaged with what other people have to say. And I love the point at which Graf and Birkenstein say in the real world, we don't make arguments without being provoked. That's the whole point. I think of Kenneth Kenneth Burke's uh, conversation metaphor. Um, you're walking through the party in real life. We don't just, you're not just walking through the party and all of a sudden you grab somebody and you're, 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 you're like Superman or Batman. You're not, you, you're not going to do that. You're just going to grab somebody and do, uh, maybe you would if you've had a couple drinks or, you know, if you just need to know the answer or you're just doing a random poll. Um, but most of the time we're not going to do that sort of thing. We don't make arguments without being provoked. We don't get engaged in that way. Um, and, and so I think that's why we find it so hard to write research papers is that um, in high school, we get taught the five-paragraph essay, right? Everybody knows the five-paragraph essay, which is sometimes called the hamburger method. Uh, your introduction is the bun and your conclusion is the other bun and the body with its three points is the bacon, lettuce, and tomato. I don't know why I said bacon, lettuce, and tomato because there's bacon on this burger. The meat, the lettuce, and the tomato or whatever fixings you put on your burger. Basically, it's that, that's the metaphor. It's like a burger. And your introduction and your conclusion are really just sort of the same thing. They're not. Um, but they are connected and that's something valuable to keep in mind. And... The five-paragraph essay is something valuable to keep in mind because it says that an essay should be structured, right? And if you take a look at this infographic, which I grabbed off the internet and I can't remember where I got it from, so if you made it, thank you, I'm sorry, I'll give you credit if you tell me who you are. Um, it was a long time ago that I got this, uh, that this, got this image. Um, but here in this image, it says that, you know, the body of the five paragraph essay is a main point plus support, main point plus support. So there, there's an argument with support being constructed there, right? But the way that we're taught the, the five paragraph essay in high school is a rudiment. What do I mean by rudiment? It's like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I play bass, uh, playing scales in music, is rudiment. You learn to do something rudimentary. There's a rudiment when you're learning bass guitar to just do this with your fingers up and down the fretboard. You're not actually playing music, but you're getting your fingers used to moving along the fretboard. There's another exercise where you just take the, the hand that plucks the strings and you just pluck up and down the four strings. Boo, 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 and you go up and down. And that doesn't play music. Nobody's going to come see a concert of, say, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing scales. Well, maybe you'd see Flea do it because he'd probably, you know, throw some mustard on that and make it really exciting. But we don't, we don't go to see people perform scales unless it's for comedy. We go to see them play songs, and songs are based on scales, which are rudiments. Great writing is based on the rudiment of the five-paragraph essay. I'm not saying, like, it was a complete waste of your time. You know, high school was a wash. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the five-paragraph essay is a starting point, or it's a point along the road. You shouldn't even call it a starting point, because we learn to write 
back in grade one and two and three and moving along. And we should understand that writing, writing is never something you arrive at. You don't ever arrive and go, I've got it all. I've got it all. Because I know published writers and they're always honing their craft. They're always open to learning something new. And you need to be open to learning something new about the five-paragraph essay, because the five-paragraph essay, as Graf and Birkenstein talk about it, and as I see most of my students utilize it, doesn't really have a point. It, it No one's been provoked. And so there really isn't an argument. There's just a lot of information. In the end, it's more like an encyclopedia entry, like something on Wikipedia. Go read a Wikipedia stub. They aren't making an argument. They're just telling you facts. It's like, here's the information. But it doesn't go anywhere. There's no so what to it. There's certainly no naysayer. There's no, you know, Some people believe this thing, but we would like to assert. No, if they say some people believe such and such, it's just information. It's not part of a larger argument. So the five-paragraph essay exists as a rudiment. And we need to move beyond it. And we need to move beyond it so that you're not writing like that in your second, your third, and your fourth year. And if you're like, well, I wouldn't be, I'll move it. No, no, I've had second, third, and fourth year students hand in essays that are still following this model because they've never learned anything else. They learned the five-paragraph essay in high school and they stalled. So often we, I, I see students doing this. It's like, well, I learned this thing about five years ago. There's more to learn. There's always more to learn. So uh, to illustrate why we want to stay away from the five-paragraph essay, um, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's uh, from when my son was uh, all the way back in grade um, six. And uh, he had to do a a five-sentence paragraph. Um, and uh, Or it was a three-sentence paragraph because it's the three points, right? You've got your intro, your three points, and your conclusion. So this is a three-sentence paragraph. And normally I don't get to really help my son with his homework um, because, you know, my wife knew all the other stuff. I'm not very good at math. Um, and uh, But I was like, okay, yeah, writing a, writing a paragraph. This is my jam. Here we go. I'm going to help you out. And so I sat down with him and I said, what's it about? And he told me and I said, okay, write your first sentence. So he wrote his first sentence. And I said, okay, no, for the next sentence, we need to come off of what you've just said and build the idea. And he's dad, that's not what she wants. And I said, who's got the PhD buddy. And he's like, you do. And I was like, come on, it's going to be all right. You know, like, trust me, I, I'm, I teach this all the time. Now, he goes on and he does what I tell him to, and he turns in his work. And I, it was a great paragraph. It had, it had flow. It said something. It was great. And he got two out of 10. And I was like, whoops. So I contacted the teacher. I said, hey, this is on me. Can you let him do a do-over? He told me over and over again, this isn't what she wants. He understood the assignment. But I'd also like to come in and talk to you. And she said, sure, he can do a rewrite. He did, improved his grade. I go in to talk to the teacher and I said, I just want you to understand where I was coming from. I was trying to head off something that I see when my students get to university, which is that there's no flow to the paper that they're writing. Like there's no central argument. It's, it's, it's like a grab bag of concepts and there's no transitions, no connective tissue between the ideas. It's just random thought, random thought, random thought, random thought. You know, it's like, it's like a squirrel wrote it. And she says, I, I understand. I get it. Trust me. I get it. We're going to be working on uh, a three paragraph 
essay later this semester. And I said, okay, could you tell me what that looks like? She said, sure. Uh, well, you know, let's go with the example we're currently working with, because they were studying Greece, as you do in grades five or six in the Alberta curriculum. And uh, she said, so like, for starters, they might write their first paragraph about Greek government. And my brain just it froze. It seized up because my, it, the, the academic in me is going, now hold on a moment. Greek government isn't a paragraph. It's an essay unto itself, if not a book. Because what aspect of Greek government are you talking about? Are you talking about the Athenian democracy of, you know, years bygone, thousands of years ago? The democracy that people are like, oh, did you know that the Athenians had democracy and it's not the democracy that we have today? Or are you talking about how the Greek government basically screwed its economy um, and, you know, it went right into the toilet? Which of those, which, which of those governments are you talking about and how are you going to fit this all into one paragraph now i want you to stop and i want you to think about an essay like a museum exhibit and when you go to a museum exhibit it, there's a flow to it there's a, it's like a journey right imagine this 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 exhibit it's just greece right that's the exhibit greece and the first little section that you walk into is greek government but they only get i don't know 50 words, because that's about as many as you can fit into a paragraph to tell you about Greek government. And you're sort of trying to piece all these bits and fragments together, and you turn the corner, you're still thinking about Greek government, and she moves on to paragraph number two, or section number two of our museum exhibit, and she says, oh, the second might be, I don't know, Greek mythology. And again, I'm thinking, that's not a paragraph, it's an essay, and if not, it's a book, because I've read books about Greek mythology, and they don't, you, you know, they're huge. There's tons to be said about that. There's a whole religious practice for an ancient people. What aspect of Greek mythology are you going to be talking about that's going to fit into a paragraph? You can't even summarize the plot of Clash of the Titans in a paragraph. But imagine now that you come around the corner at the museum and there's these people dressed in togas and because you don't have a hell of a lot of time, there's only two out of the entire Greek pantheon. Maybe it's Zeus on one side and Athena on the other. Zeus has got a big beard and he's hitting on your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whoever has walked into the room because that's Zeus. And then Athena's got an owl and that's kind of cool because it feels like Harry Potter and that's got a nice vibe to it. And I thought, okay, where are we going next? And what the hell does mythology have to do with government, by the way? Maybe it's the pantheon, right? Zeus is at the top and everybody's below. And maybe you can fit those things together. But otherwise, it's just a grab bag at this point of Greece. And then you come around the corner for number three. And what did she give me for number three? And she said, I don't know. Paragraph number three might be Greek food. And I thought, that's how you conclude an essay that began with Greek government. And then you moved on to mythology. You're going to end with food and that's what it, you know you're in the museum and you come around the corner and sho someone shoves feta cheese and an olive in your mouth and says thanks for coming that's Greece that's a three paragraph essay that has no point no direction no transitions and ultimately as the result of not being provoked now if you were to ask a student after you taught them about Greece what did you find most interesting and you said I want you to write about that one thing that would be a student being provoked. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, 
I'm not very provoked about Hiroshima or Godzilla. Ah, that's okay. See, because one of the reasons that I assign Hiroshima and Godzilla is because the university has a lot of moments in it where we will read, well, we have to study something that we're not particularly passionate about. Uh, there's a lot of things in our, in our culture right now about like, just follow your passion, right? If you're passionate about it, you can do it. And in the real world, no one gives a shit about your passion. You don't get asked about your passion when you go to apply for a job. So there is a sort of real-world thing still here. On the one hand, I want you to be learning for the sake of education and changing your brain. And on the other, we have to be think, thinking about practical outcomes. And one of the practical outcomes of using Godzilla and Hiroshima is that at the beginning of the semester, at least, most of my students don't care about either of those things. And as you'll see, that can potentially be a really good thing. But you've already made a sort of provoked choice. I asked you to choose an article about one of the two, Hiroshima or Godzilla. And you chose, based on a very small amount of information, you went in a direction. You were ultimately provoked. You were provoked to make a choice, and you did. So it's not that we don't care about the five-paragraph essay. It's just that we need to leave it behind, or we need to be more artful about it. And we're going to learn more about how to do that as we go on this semester. Effective arguments, Graf and Birkenstein say, are always in dialogue with other arguments. If we go back to the whole thing about Greece, all you'd have to do is have a statement about Greece. You know, like, I don't like Greek food. And you might come back at me, right? Like, if we're sitting around at a party, let's do the party metaphor again, and I say, eh, I'm not fond of uh, Greek food. I don't like feta cheese. I'm not big on olives. And you might be like, oh, come on now. There's a lot more to Greek food than just feta cheese and olives. It's like whenever somebody says, I don't like anime, and you know, you get somebody jumping up out of the woodwork going, anime isn't just one thing, it's many different things. There are all sorts of genres under anime. Anime is really more of a medium than a genre. Um, or, you know, if you say, I don't like K-pop, somebody's like, well, hold on a second. Uh, K-pop isn't just one thing. It's all sorts of different stuff. I mean, there's a huge difference between Day 6 and uh, Stray Kids. There's a huge difference between these things. Um, or BTS. So... You know, it isn't just one thing. And our effective arguments are always in dialogue with other arguments because we've been provoked and we want to write something. But we don't want to be too provoked. And that's what I mean about the Hiroshima Godzilla thing. When I first started teaching this course, um, it was hip and it was cool. And I think it still is to do hot button topics. Like for just a second, I thought about making the course about like COVID and asking you guys to write papers about like, should masking be mandated? Should we have uh, vaccination passports? But I remember what happened when we used to do hot button topics back when I started teaching when it was like, should marijuana be legalized? Should homosexuals be allowed to marry? And you can tell how far the world's come along since I first started teaching. But when students wrote about those things, they wrote with passion, but they didn't always write well because they were so invested passionately that they forgot to write effectively. So we want to be in dialogue, but we want to make sure that our dialogue isn't like overwrought. Um, some students want to know, why can't I just state my own view and be done with it? As Graf and Birkenstein asked, why can't I just say what I think? Isn't it better? For me to demonstrate what I think without having to rely upon what others have said, doesn't that demonstrate my brilliance? Potentially. But let's just stop with Hiroshima for a moment, and we can jump back to Michael Milam's article on Hiroshima. And I'm going to tell you two pronunciations for that city. In America, Hiroshima is often pronounced Hiroshima. 
and in Japan, it's pronounced roughly Hiroshima. Okay? Hiroshima? Hiroshima. Two points of view. When the bomb was dropped, the view from the people who dropped the bomb, the people who say Hiroshima, was a gigantic mushroom cloud. And they knew that there was devastation down on the ground. But it was just a great big mushroom cloud. It wasn't individuals. It was the end of the war. And that symbol, that, 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 that mushroom cloud became a symbol to the American people of the end of the war. So their point of view about Hiroshima at one point in history, at any rate, was largely that's, that's how our, our soldiers got to come home. That's how we got to end the war. Take a look at Michael Milam's article and he talks about that photograph. The view from the ground, the view from the people of Hiroshima. And it's not just this great big cloud. It's up close horror. Absolutely devastating, gut-wrenching horror on the ground. And we're not going to be dealing much with articles that get into that kind of detail. But there have been forensic studies done. When I say forensic, I'm talking about like, what were the, what was the nitty gritty of how awful it was on the ground? Like Milan talks about the skin hanging off of these people. It's awful. It's worse than, you know, many horror movies. It is, I was reading a book called Last Train um, to, Last Train to uh, Nagasaki. No, I've got that wrong. Um, it's by Charles Pellegrino, and I wish I had the title correct right now, y'all, and I'm sorry that I don't. Um, but the, uh, there's a part in the book that was so detailed, so riveting, and so emotionally arresting. I was, I was listening to it on the bus, and um, I, I just started crying. It's called The Last Train from Hiroshima. Last Train from Hiroshima, Charles R. Pellegrino. And he was talking about what it was like on the ground. And I, I was so overcome by what I was listening to that I began to weep openly on the bus. Now, I'm a crier. I cry easy. I cry at the Little Mermaid when she sings, What is uh, fire and how does it, what's the word burn? I don't know why. I just do. But I don't sob. I don't weep. Um all the time. And this had me doing that. I just had to get off the bus because people were looking at me. And so when you, you know, when we ask the question, why can't I just state my own view and be done with it? It's potentially because your view is too limited. Your view is too limited. Now, if you go and you do the research and you find out that your view wasn't limited, then carry on. But carry on on the shoulders of giants. That's the thing about going and finding out what they say first. Entering the conversation. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. When we make statements, it's not just shit my dad said or something that you thought of or something you learned in grade three from your teacher who had misinformation. But it's something that you have now corroborated. It's something you can point to and you can say, no, there are, are a number of scholarly peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate what we're talking about. So don't just express your ideas, right? Don't just express your ideas. Graf and Birkenstein have a cartoon that uh, Gerald Graf drew and I've, I've appropriated it a little bit, filled it in with some Godzilla content. Don't just say something like, Godzilla is justifiably recognized as a masterpiece of international filmmaking, unsurpassed in its impact and imagination. 
And the crowd's going, yeah, so, and, huh? why is he telling us this? Godzilla is awesome. Okay. We weren't talking about Godzilla. There's no framework for that to sort of say why you ought to care. The original Godzilla movie is a classic. That's, you know, that's Rifle's position. But we can come back and say, okay, so what? Is there someone who contests that? Is there anyone who cares? Like, why does that matter? If we present our ideas as a response to another person or group, then we potentially tell our audience immediately why they ought to care. And so on our, on our journey towards the research paper this semester, let's start thinking about why our audience should care in ways that aren't as grandiose as ending world hunger. We, we need to reduce it to giving a sort of like why, why this matters in some way. So I've changed uh, the second part of the cartoon where the, the guy uh, frames his statement as a response to another person or group. Even though most people think of Godzilla as pop culture garbage, the original 1954 film was a masterpiece of Japanese cinema meant to evoke the horror of Hiroshima and the end of World War II. Hmm, good point. Gee, never thought of that. Maybe I didn't know that at all. And I'll tell you, I grew up as a fan of Godzilla and I had no idea about this. And we're going we're gonna to find out more about that. If you're in the Godzilla stream, you're going to find out why that's the case. But we might also just think about like this statement in relation to Milam's article, The Horror of Hiroshima. If Gojira, the original Godzilla movie, was meant to evoke the horror of Hiroshima, how does it do it? Rifle talks about some of these things. And so what you can see is you can start to see there's a conversation happening here. And it's not just a conversation that's happening within the streams. Although, you know, you can stay in your lane the whole semester. You just do Hiroshima. You just do Godzilla. But if you start blending these things together, if you're reading not only Rifle, but you're also reading Alperovitz, you're going to get some insights that will be that will enlarge your understanding of the conversation in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. And it's true in the reverse as well. Because Godzilla stands as an, an art artifact of culture. A cultural artifact of the way actual Japanese people felt about the horror of Hiroshima and the end of World War II. And they expressed it in a movie about a giant monster. So... When we're thinking about they say and I say, it's don't just express your ideas. That's not enough. We want to present them as a response to another person or group. Now, you might be thinking, is this for the summary? No. Remember what our long goal is. Our long goal is to teach you how to write a research paper, how to do the kind of research you need to for university. You're working on a summary right now, which is entirely a moment of they say. And so if you're going to present some of what someone else has said, Alperovitz or Rifle, on a research paper at the end of the semester, you first need to know what they say. And you don't just need to know it in a sort of, I read it quick and I, you know, skimmed it. No, I want you to absorb it to the point where, and trust me, you will be able to do this after you write the summary, where you could tell someone about it over coffee. When you can tell someone the content of an academic article over coffee without having to consult notes, you really understand it. And as I said last week, when we were talking about summaries, if we can summarize content from 
a scholarly source that we're working with and do it well, we demonstrate a mastery of that content that simply quoting from it never will. So it's not just about making sure that we include what they say. It's about us making sure that we demonstrate that we have a mastery of what they say so that when we respond, our reader can trust us.